What happened to Durham? Where's Durham? And by the way, where's Durham? What happened? Where is he? He disappeared. Au contraire, mon frere. Be careful what you wish for, oh orange one. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, and Janesville, Wisconsin, we're on WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com with an assist from Desi Doyen of the Green News Report. But once again today, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, uh, holding down the fort for one more day as they uh, regroup this week. And boy, do we have a good one for you today because, you know, yesterday a federal jury handed down a verdict in the Durham investigation. Yeah, the oranges, the, right. the oranges of the uh, uh, investigation, the, the, oranges the beginnings of, of the investigation. investigation. Right, of course. About the oranges, Mueller report. Yeah, the Mueller report. I wish covered what? the oranges. The oranges how it okay. started. Yeah, the beginnings of the investigation. Got it. We heard it, it Donald. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. So th- this is allegedly that, but it isn't. And the verdict came back. There's no there there. But we knew that already. Did it really need to take three years to get this far? Well, there was only one person I could think of to call to find out what's going on. And that's our friend, Marcy Wheeler. Marcy Wheeler, who blogs at EmptyWheel.net. She's one of the OG bloggers in the blogosphere. And she's still doing it, though these days she's doing it from Ireland. But she is paying attention like nobody else I know. So not only will we get the scoop on what happened with the Durham investigation and this verdict that was handed down just the other day, but we'll also take a look forward to next week because what happens next week? Come on, you know. The public hearings begin put on by the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. So Marcy Wheeler is my go-to person For all of this stuff, she's covering it better than anyone I've seen anywhere else. So read her at EmptyWheel.net and certainly stick around because for the rest of the hour, I'm going to pick Marcy Wheeler's brain. Come 
you've got the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi today. And, well, the news, big story just broke that a jury, a federal jury in Washington, D.C., found a Democratic lawyer, Michael Sussman, not guilty of lying to investigators in a 2016 meeting in which he shared data on an alleged link between Trump Tower and Russia's Alpha Bank that was later debunked. This was the case brought by special counsel John Durham, obviously a holdover appointed by Donald Trump, who accused Sussman of hiding his ties to Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign when he brought the allegations with the then FBI general counsel Jim Baker. So the jury finally returned the verdict. Durham's only been at it for three years. And the jury came back almost instantly. Wasn't much to deliberate. So I figured we're going to call on the best expert of all things having to do with the Trump investigations, with Durham, with January 6th, with everything that's going on. And that is Marcy Wheeler. You know her as Empty Wheel on Twitter. She's an independent journalist writing on her own website, EmptyWheel.net. So, Marcy, if you listen to right-wing media... Um, There's your first mistake. Yeah, I know. Well, I don't. But I said, (laughs) if you do, you'd been waiting for something from the Durham investigation. Yesterday, we got an outcome for the first and only case brought to trial by this Durham probe after three years of looking. So if you don't mind, can we start from the beginning and explain what John Durham was looking into? A really important point, and I'm going to write this up in the next couple of days, is that There was no predication. There was no dead body. There was no stolen emails. There was no um, advanced knowledge of a hack and leak campaign. This investigation started because Bill Barr, even before he returned as attorney general, just had a feeling there was something wrong with the predication of the Russian investigation. And so if you read his memoir, which I've done, don't do that either. No, I won't. But if you read his (laughs) memoir... He makes it very clear. He's like, okay, shut down Mueller. Now I have to um, get Durham started on this investigation of how it all started. He doesn't describe anything more than kind of gut feel that there was something wrong with it. So there's no predication behind this investigation. Um, Barr in the last couple of days was on some right-wing media show and he admitted that uh, even though there was an ongoing DOJIG investigation at the time by Michael Horowitz into uh Carter Page's targeting under FISA, he nevertheless started Durham off. And he described, well, you know, we sort of killed time until such time as we could get a grand jury. And they got a grand jury via this um, prosecution handed to Durham on a silver platter, basically. This guy named Kevin Kleinsmith pled guilty to altering a document. And it, it was serious. I mean, I think that it was right that he be prosecuted, but there was no reason it needed a special prosecutor to be prosecuted. What Barr did is use that investigation to get a grand jury and start unpacking everybody's lives. And by everybody, I mean all the FBI people who were involved, everyone at Fusion, everyone in the Alpha Bank case, which we're going to get to, all these researchers who found an anomaly and said this could be dangerous, this could be serious, their lives have all been exposed and not just exposed, but their research has been exposed to Russia. So that's how this investigation started. And then um, last year, 2021, 
on the very last day before this, or two days, three days, this before the statute of limitations expired on a meeting that Michael Sussman had with FBI General Counsel Jim Baker, Durham charged him with lying, Michael Sussman, lying to Jim Baker, the FBI's okay. general counsel. And Michael Sussman was Hillary Clinton's lawyer at the time? Yeah, so so he worked at Perkins Coie, and he was, through much of 2016, he was the point person between the FBI and all of the Democrats who were getting hacked. And so here's this guy who spent 2016 trying to prevent serial nation-state hacks, and he's the guy being prosecuted, not, say... Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. who was trading information, not Donald Trump, who was asking for more hacks, right. not Roger Stone, who was in advance in advance contact with the people who were releasing the documents. Michael Sussman's the one who gets charged. And um, even from the beginning, it was clear this case was weak because there was only one witness, Jim Baker. There were no notes. There were no contemporaneous notes. There were hearsay notes of Baker sharing the allegations after the fact. Um, And then from there, the case got worse and worse because um, it became clear that Durham had not done basic investigative things before charging Michael Sussman. For example, he had never subpoenaed Jim Baker, the FBI general counsel. Wow. And um, right. uh, And in March of this year, probably because Michael Sussman kept saying, I mean, so Michael Sussman in in 2017 testified to Congress under oath. And he said, the reason I went to the FBI is because we were about to release this story about basically that um, there were weird communications between Trump organization and Alpha Bank and Trump organization and Spectrum Health, which is a hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I used to live. Right. And the story Sussman told at the trial was that they had gotten the New York Times to run with the story. It was going to be a great story, putting Trump on his heels. And then on September 18th, Sidney Blumenthal, Sidney Blumenthal is involved in every politicized trial in D.C., and this one didn't fail on that regard. Right. right before the story is about to go, Sidney Blumenthal sent Robbie Mook his intelligence about how panicked Trump was because he knew there was going to be a New York Times story about his ties to Russia. And so seemingly in response to knowing that Trump was going to blow a gasket, Sussman said, I'm going to go to the FBI and give them a heads up because I want them to have the option of maybe asking the New York Times to hold the story. So he sent Jim Baker a text on the 18th saying, hey, I've got something sensitive and time sensitive. I'm not doing this on behalf of any client. I'm doing this to help the FBI. Comes in the next day, tells him that the New York Times, he doesn't say the New York Times. He says, some outlet is about to break the story, um, wanted to give you a heads up. And within days, the FBI is like, you know, we'd really like to investigate this before the New York Times reports on it. And so they go back to Sussman and say, can you tell us who's about to publish this story? And Sussman consults with a guy named Rodney Jaffe, who's one of the researchers who found these anomalies. And they decide that they're going to share Eric Lichtblau's name with the FBI. The FBI kills the story. And then the outcome of this story becomes worse and worse, both for the Democrats and for Eric Lichtblau. So it was the stupidest thing that Michael Sussman could have done to go to the FBI. And that's, in fact, what Mark Elias, um, the Democrats' chief lawyer, and Robbie Mook, 
who was the campaign manager. That's what they both said on the on the on the stand. They 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 both were like, the FBI going to the FBI is the is the most obvious way to kill this story. And uh-huh. oh, by the way, we didn't trust the FBI because Jim Comey was stomping all over our campaign. Um, and so, in spite of the fact that it didn't make any sense, Durham decided to charge this. As I said, he never subpoenaed um, Jim Baker, and it appears that. He only found that text I told you about, the September 18th text saying, I want to help the FBI, after Sussman kept saying, look, I know there's evidence that we cooperated with the FBI to kill the story. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And Durham never found it. He kept looking. And then finally, like almost six months after he charged Sussman, he's like, say, Jim Baker, would you mind looking into your iCloud account to see if there's anything pertaining to Sussman? Just Sussman, by the way, not the other subjects of the investigation. And that's when Durham's case started to fall further and further apart because that text actually hurt his case, bizarrely. He then subsequently found materials that were at DOJIG, which made it clear that by March of 2017, the FBI knew that Sussman had a client. So the, the whole thing just fell apart. And it fell apart because John Durham didn't bother to test the explanation for the meeting that Michael Sussman gave under oath to Congress. Never bothered to test it. And guess what? Michael Sussman was telling the truth to Congress, told, you know, there's no evidence he lied to the FBI. And so yesterday, after the after the jury acquitted Michael Sussman, they were like, this was a waste of our time. There are better right. things that, that DOJ should be doing. So this investigation, as it were, has been going on for over three years. This is the only case Durham's whole investigation brought, and it was a nonsense case. But this is what... It's, it's not actually the only one. There's oh, still one outstanding okay. against a guy named Igor Danchenko, who was... Christopher Steele's primary subsource for the dossier. Uh-huh. And same kind of thing, though. He is accused of lying to the FBI when he was very cooperatively telling the FBI what he had actually told Christopher Steele, which was different from what Christopher Steele included in his reports. Mm. And um, for cooperating with the FBI, Durham decided to charge him to, uh, in some ways, it's an even more problematic case. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's an even more problematic case. I mean, that case the Danchenko case, Durham couldn't even competently cut and paste from his own materials. Like if you compare what communications he's actually relying on and what he's charged, they don't match. Right. You know, that shouldn't, that shouldn't have been approved, but anyway, okay. So that, that, that one's due to go to trial in October. If he can uh, declassify all the information that he needs to share with Igor Danchenko, which he has been having problems doing. But there seems to be a huge disconnect for me in, and again, I haven't paid much attention to the Durham story over the last three years because there, from what I could tell, there's not much of a story, although right wing media, again, has played it up. But if you listen to, you know, what how they were putting all their hopes on this, I told you not to listen to that. I, I know I don't. But but check this out. This is just a 15 second clip. I look forward to Bull Durham's Bull Durham? report. That's the one I look forward to. OK. You know, what happened to Durham? Where's Durham? And by the way, where's Durham? What happened? Where is he? He disappeared. What did they expect out of Durham? They, they, they expected Durham to, um, to validate Trump's big lie? Well, this is of a piece of, um, I mean, it's equivalent to um, Trump 
trying to trump up an investigation of Hunter Biden, right? right? Um, Trump, like uh, Russian tied oligarchs across the world, like to use a justice system to retaliate against their rivals. Uh, you know, Trump did this in 2016, but uh, her emails, right? Right. Like Trump's entire 2016 campaign was built around criminalizing Hillary Clinton for things that were nowhere near as bad as he was doing in real time. So this is a piece. Like he believed that he could trump up an investigation against the people who were mean to him. And, oh, by the way, this has had the result of doing real damage to the FBI, to these researchers. I th These are cybersecurity researchers They've been involved in helping the FBI uh, hunt down and prevent attacks, especially from Russia, for years. And these people have all been compromised, have all been badly hurt by this investigation. And it's hard to tell what Trump believed. It's still to this day hard to believe what Durham's prosecutors believe because they're, they engaged in such bad faith that it's hard to tell whether they're just corrupt or whether they were embarrassed by the exposure of their incompetence, and so tried to brave through the uh, through the prosecution, thinking maybe they could convince the jury to to um, convict in any case, or whether um, I mean, or whether they um, just knew that their goal, or you know, I mean, one of the things they did. Let me give you an example: is that um, I wrote a post about how these prosecutors broke seven rules that Judge Casey Cooper, Christopher Cooper, um, the judge in the case that he set. One of the rules had to do with this Hillary, Hillary Clinton tweet after, after um, not the New York Times, but Slate wrote a story about this Alpha Bank anomaly. Um, the campaign released a tweet under Hillary's name saying, wow, this is really bad. Maybe the FBI should investigate. And um, Judge Cooper kind of went back and forth about whether this tweet should come in. It was clearly hearsay. It was clearly going to distract the jury. And right before, like, as um, prosecutors were, were uh, questioning Robbie Mook, the prosecutor takes a break and says, Judge, can I introduce this tweet? And the judge is like, well, okay, but, but do not read from the tweet and do not read the language from the tweet that references the FBI. And so the prosecutor hands an unredacted tweet to Robbie Mook and orders him to read, read, wasn't supposed to read from uh -huh. it, orders for, and doesn't stop him. No one stops Aye. him until, he, until after the FBI stuff comes out. The media went nuts, right? But that was the single biggest story that came out of this prosecution and um, predictably. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, this is, you know, what Trump and Barr are using to say that Hillary Clinton should be prosecuted. And legally, because uh, the judge tried to put the horse back in the barn after he had let it go, legally, that evidence was not sent back with the jury to, uh, to deliberate over when they started deliberating on Friday. Um, but that was the big takeaway from this case. And so, and there were many cases of this where Durham created not a legal case, but a media case. And you know, the media fell for it every single time. And uh, and so that taking away from that, one is led to believe that Durham doesn't care whether he gets 
whether he gets prosecutions, he cares like the, you know, like Trump was looking for in the announcement from Ukraine that they were investigating Hunter Biden. It's not the investigation. It's the announcement of this, you know, conspiracy theory that John Durham has been claiming that matters. And I really do think that's what Durham has been focused on since he indicted Sussman. And we'll see whether he is reined in with Danchenko. Okay, see, the whole thing to me, it is crazy. I mean, it sounds like that it's all based on an alleged lie told by Sussman to the FBI. So the Republicans are going nuts because there was they alleged that there was a lie. Can we look back on Donald Trump's entire uh, administration and how many times he lied? I mean, they're really going nuts over an alleged lie. That's that, well. Yeah, but remember the point to this is um, the point is to claim that the investigation into Donald Trump, the Russian investigation, and this was Bill Barr's intent from the beginning. Okay. Um, this is what Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, chose to use DOJ for. It was to discredit the Russian investigation, which led to the conviction of Donald Trump's um National Security Advisor for lying about for lying to cover up his ties to Russia. It led to the prosecution of Trump's foreign foreign affairs advisor, the Coffee Boy, for lying to cover up his ties to Russia. It led to the prosecution of Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, mm-hmm. for lying to cover up his ties to Russia. It led to the prosecution of Roger Stone for lying to cover up his ties to Russia. It led to a judgment by Judge Amy Berman Jackson that Paul Manafort was lying to cover up his ties to Russia. So that's what the Russian investigation came up with, which was that everyone in Trump's orbit was lying to cover up what really went on with Russia. Right. Um, Barr dreamt up this investigation, and the goal is to provide some other basis rather than Trump got advance notice. Um, And it wasn't just the coffee boy. There's very good reason to believe that Roger Stone had advance notice and was in continued contact with uh, GRU persona, uh, Goosefer 2.0, that Trump had multiple strands of advance notice of this hack and leak campaign targeting his his, um, competitor in 2016. And Barr is trying to invent a different story. And so the goal behind this Mm -hmm. investigation was to falsely suggest that when Michael Sussman came to the FBI um, uh, over a month and a half after the investigation into Trump had started um, and said, there's this weird anomaly, maybe you can look into it, that that was the beginning of the investigation into Trump and not, in fact, a tip from Australia saying, you know, your coffee boy knew about the knew about the hack and leak campaign before anyone else did. Right. Um, and so that's the goal. That's the goal is to discredit the Russian investigation, to claim that um, that the investigation in Trump wasn't meritorious. Uh, I run into trolls every single hour on Twitter who claim to me that Durham has had much bigger um, outcomes than Mueller did, which is nonsense. Right. You know, like people, right. you know, like they're telling me, well, you know, Mueller never had to bring a case to trial. Well, I mean, he brought the Manafort case to trial and DC U.S. attorney brought the Stone case to trial. Well, Mueller didn't get any prosecutions. Mueller got 30 some, you know, Mueller, Mueller I just laid through the, the right. five people who were prosecuted or um, found to have lied 
in Russian related Russian uh, hack and leak related right. crimes, right. and then throw in Paul Manafort's money laundering and yada yada yada. Right, thirty four indictments, guilty pleas, a lot of stuff. And here's the other disconnect. So. You know, you say you you run across them on Twitter all the time. Well, I run across them in my travels. In fact, last week, I had an interview with a guy, a a journalist who writes for The Nation, who uh, believes that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 election. That, you know, there's this, they're buying the the right-wing narrative about this when the Mueller uh, investigation. Look, let's be clear. It's not a right wing narrative. It's a Russian uh, narrative. It's a Russian narrative that they've yeah. picked. Okay, that 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 for some reason, not only Fox and that whole part of our media goes along with, but some self proclaimed progressives do as well. And like this reporter for the Nation, um, he he said the the only thing that Russia was guilty of was buying some ads on Facebook, like. What, have we not been reading the same thing? Didn't the Mueller report really lay it out, although Barr mischaracterized what it found and that's what they've run with? Yeah. Um, and interestingly, and this is a fact that literally I'm the only one to have reported, um, the Mueller investigation actually, everyone's like, well, he found no collusion, no conspiracy. He wasn't looking for collusion. Collusion's not a crime. He didn't charge conspiracy. Right. Um, because while there was abundant evidence of a conspiracy, there wasn't enough to, to um, prove beyond reasonable doubt. That's a really interesting judgment because Durham treated this Alpha Bank thing as a conspiracy. He actually argued that to Judge Cooper. He said, we want all of these extra files to come in. It's a joint venture, just like a conspiracy, even though it's not a crime, so Durham was given great leeway by the judge to argue that this was a conspiracy, arguably far too much. And even given that leeway, he still failed to get a guilty conviction, wow. whereas I think Mueller could have easily gotten a guilty conviction with, with Manafort. My suspicion is that they um, didn't want to charge at that point, and they believed you know, either Manafort was going to be pardoned or he was going to be in jail for seven years given his um, money laundering convictions. Same with Roger Stone, both ended up being pardoned. And so I think that one of the things DOJ or Mueller was doing was buying time for these, not just for the criminal investigations to go forward, but uh, for counterintelligence investigations to understand how Russia was working. But the important thing is that Barr claimed that this was a final conclusion, no conspiracy. Right. The, the actual conclusion, for the most part, was uh, lots of evidence of conspiracy, not enough to charge. But what's interesting is there is a footnote in the Mueller report that was not declassified until literally the night before the 2020 election. OK, that said, uh, we haven't charged Stone in a hacking conspiracy with Russia because we still have outstanding questions. And we have referred those questions, multiple, to D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So in other words, when Mueller finished up in March of 2019, um, they were still investigating Roger Stone in a hacking conspiracy with Russia. Wow. And they used his prosecution to advance that investigation to to get people to to um, testify without them believing that they were testifying. So in other words, 
that investigation went through at least April 2020 when Bill Barr killed the Roger Stone prosecution. Um, and ultimately, the facts show that Bill Barr halted an ongoing investigation into whether Roger Stone conspired with Russia. It was not a conclude. It was not a conclusion. It was still ongoing when Barr took over, and um, by all appearances, he killed that investigation into Roger Stone. Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net is my guest today on the broadcast, explaining everything we need to know about the Durham investigation, about what's coming with the one six uh, hearings, uh, and all that. So don't move because there's lots more to talk about. And we'll do that in just a moment. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of the Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi today. In the middle of an in-depth conversation with journalist Marcy Wheeler, you find her at EmptyWheel.net and, of course, on the Twitters, at EmptyWheel. And I'll tell you, she's living in Ireland these days, but covering what's happening here in the States better than any other news outlet that I know of. Uh, she's all over the 1-6 hearings. She's all over uh, this Durham investigation. Um, she is a font of information, and thankfully, she's with us today on the broadcast. All right, now I'm going to segue a little bit because there are news reports out this week that all of a sudden the DOJ is ramping up its investigation and prosecutions. Um, you've been saying all along that Merrick Garland is working on this. Give him time, give him space, let him do it. Are we at that point? It's not ramping up, Nicole. It's what I've been telling you all along. Let me give you an example. One okay. of the key details is um, that um, Peter Navarro revealed he had mm. been subpoenaed mm -hmm. um, back. I, I think he, well, anyway, he received a subpoena. He, Peter Navarro, remember, is a, was a financial advisor to Trump who was part of Steve Bannon's plan to discredit the election. And um, he wrote a book claiming that the plan was just to get members of Congress to discredit the election, not to start a riot. He claims the riot was not what he intended. Right. And um, the January 6th committee subpoenaed him, like they subpoenaed Bannon, right. and uh, both men refused to cooperate. In Bannon's case, it was ridiculous because he, you know, he was claiming executive privilege, but he wasn't a member of the administration. In Navarro's case, he was claiming executive privilege, which he had more basis for, except he had written a book. Right. So how can you say this is privilege when you wrote a book? Mm -hmm. So um, in both cases, they were fairly egregious cases of them blowing off the committee. The committee refers both. Um, and... So recently, just in the couple last couple of weeks, and in fact, you can see the prosecutor who dropped off a case against um, Anthem Gione, otherwise known as Baked Alaska. She dropped off his case uh, maybe two weeks ago, and in the subsequent two weeks, subpoenaed Peter Navarro and asked him basically for everything that he would have given to the um, January 6th committee. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a real subpoena. You know, it's not like now DOJ is going to come after him. And and this is one of the bases that everyone's saying, oh, lots of progress, lots of progress. And the reason this is not new is because DOJ did very similar things with Steve Bannon when that when that when he was referred for contempt 
to DOJ back in November. And what they what they did in November was subpoena the call records for the attorney he shares with Rudy Giuliani. Okay. And they got those call records, call and email records, not the content, but who have you been com- contacting? They got those um, materials going back to March 3rd of 2021. So well before... Bannon was subpoenaed by the committee, and well before the committee even existed, they wanted the communications between um, Bannon's lawyer, the one he shares with Rudy Giuliani, and uh, Trump's people. And so this investigation into basically the cover-up of January 6th has been ongoing at least since November. Navarro is just complaining about it, so the people who only believe there's investigation if there's a squawking Trump person now believe there's investigation. But if there is so much continuity between all of these things, um, yes, it takes time. Yes, you build on the existing investigation. Yes, DOJ is piggybacking on the January 6th committee investigation. But that, but that, it's been clear that they were going to do that since at least July as well. One of the things they've done, DOJ has done, is the January 6th committee has gotten a ton of information from Trump. Yeah. Uh, and the process they've used to get that information from Trump is uh, they, they tell the archives what they want. Biden looks at the request and says, I'm going to waive privilege. Mm-hmm. This is not a criminal investigation. So right. Biden says, is it is there a good basis for a co-equal branch of government to be able to get these records for an investigation into attack on them? Basically, Biden approves it. Trump gets a little leeway to squawk, but generally not. And then if the archives believes that these materials are relevant, they get handed over to the January 6th committee. Guess what's happened? You know, like guess what happens once that's done? DOJ can then subpoena those materials. Right from the archives and have have an executive privilege review already done that doesn't require Joe Biden to waive executive privilege for a criminal investigation. So what they've done, and this was actually a problem that Mueller had, was you know um, Trump waived executive privilege for the investigation, but not for prosecution. And that proved to be a problem even with the Mueller report. DOJ, learning how Trump works, has used the January 6th committee, among other ways, to get executive privilege reviews without telling Biden anything about the criminal investigation. So one should assume that all the materials that are being shared with the January 6th committee are also being shared with the DOJ investigation. But again, without Biden knowing about it and without Trump actually thinking about it. Wow. In fact, didn't the DOJ ask the January 6th committee for, um, I guess, all of the interviews that they've done? And January 6th committee is saying, well, hold on, we, we need to do our thing first. Is- yeah. And, um, and, and January 6th committee is right to do that. And they're probably having a discussion about specific transcripts right mm-hmm. now. Just as one example, when Ali Alexander went in to testify, I think he testified for eight, seven hours, six or seven hours. He, remember, was the organizer for Stop the Steal. He's got very, I mean, he's a mentor, mentee of Roger Stone. He's very, he was, he spent the day with Alex Jones. Alex Jones brought all the bodies from the, from the uh, ellipse to the Capitol. So he was there with Alex Jones, Pied Piper of the insurrection. Right. Um, And... 
Ali Alexander, before he testified at the January 6th committee, said, here's what I'm going to say. This is what they do. These criminals always say, here's what I'm going to testify to so they can compare stories. Um, and this is a replay of what Roger Stone did with Hipsy in 2017 with the Russian investigation. Didn't work then. He was prosecuted. Nevertheless, Ali Alexander signed up to do the same dumb thing uh, that Roger Stone had done involving one of the same lawyers that Roger Stone had used. And, he, and the story he said that he was going to tell is a story that Owen Schroyer, who is basically, you, you apparently listen to way too much right-wing media. Um, <laughs> Owen Schroyer is basically Alex Jones Jr. Oh, okay. And Owen Schroyer was arrested in August in this investigation, um, basically because he had a special prohibition against being a loud jerk at the Capitol. <laughs> Do you like how I didn't say a bad word? There? I do. I, I do. I appreciate um, it. <laughs> and so he ended up being a loud jerk on January 6th. And that was a that was a crime, especially for him. So he was arrested. He's being prosecuted. And the same story that Ali Alexander told in, I think, December to the January 6th committee, um, Troyer started telling before that to DOJ and a Trump appointed judge, Tim Kelly, already heard that story and said, nah. No, that's wrong. That's wow. that doesn't make any sense. Wow. And so, Ali Alexander told that story. Now he's he's stuck telling that story, and um and there's very good reason to believe that DOJ has some communications with Ali Alexander with some of the other people involved because they got them way back in January, March, January and March of 2021. I mean, these are the steps that DOJ took a long time ago that are coming to fruition as they're moving towards people like Ali Alexander. Um, and so we should believe that Ali Alexander's story is not consistent with the facts that are in DOJ's possession and that DOJ knows that. And so that's a transcript that I suspect that they would like to have. Oh, without a doubt. Marcy Wheeler is with us. She's been covering this story like nobody else at EmptyWheel.net. It should be part of your daily reading if it isn't already. So next week, the public hearings begin. We've been waiting for a long time for this. Do you have any ideas about what we're going to see? I mean, they haven't released the witness yet, list yet. I believe there's only two nights of primetime bookending the week, I guess, of testimony. I think it's just six days of testimony. And in the middle, it'll all be during daytime hours. Um, but that's about all I know. Do you know any more? Do I know any more? I can intuit more, which is that one of the big storylines that you're going to come out with is that Trump did absolutely nothing to stop an attack on the Capitol, mm -hmm. that he cheered as his vice president was being targeted, mm -hmm. and that he set up his vice president to be targeted. Uh, so the storyline I expect that, that the January 6th committee will tell is that um, Trump riled up a mob with his false claims about election theft. He brought them to D.C. He riled them up to assault the Capitol with his speech on January 6th. And then once they started assaulting the Capitol, and this was all done to pressure Mike Pence to basically overturn democracy. Right. And, um, and when Mike Pence refused to overturn democracy, Trump basically um, threatened him with assassination. He right. used the mob to threaten him with assassination, did nothing to stop it, did nothing to stop the attack on the Capitol, and cheered uh, the violence targeting Mike Pence. And you'll have videos of the testimony from Trump's own children making that clear, right. making it clear that they begged him to try and intervene, and they refused, first the Philson and then even Ivanka, 
Um, that's the story you're going to hear. And that story is basically going to lay out what the lawsuit against Trump, the Benny Thompson lawsuit against Trump lays out, which is that Trump conspired with at least the militias mm-hmm. to attack the Capitol. And wow. you're going to find, and, and while that's happening, Nicole, you're going to have these cases, the um, cases against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers continue to advance. And in those cases, you're going to learn more about the advanced planning that the Proud Boys used, how they riled up the mob, how they kind of um, managed the mob to maximal effect to, this is what DOJ is going to show. Uh-huh. Um I'm not sure how much of this the January 6th commission will show, but ultimately those two investigations are going to talk about how there was gen- there was actual coordination, secondhand, thirdhand, not, not Trump. As far as we know, right. Trump did not speak directly uh, with Oath Keeper head Stuart Rhodes, although Rhodes tried to talk to Trump after the January 6th insurrection. As far as we know, uh, Trump did not, speak directly to Enrique Tarrio, but he is even better connected with people one degree away from Trump than Stuart Rhodes is, and Rhodes is very well connected. Um, But through a network of people, there was genuine coordination going on on the attack on the Capitol. And once the attack on the Capitol started, Trump cheered it on and did nothing to stop it. Right. And so the the January 6th committee is going to lay this out in that series of hearings, public hearings televised next beginning next week. And then the Justice Department can use that testimony in whatever case they do. Or do we not know? Yeah, they can. No, 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 they can. I mean, and this is, again, a point I make. Everyone's like, wow, you know, how brilliant DOJ is asking for help from the January 6th committee. Well, what are they supposed Uh, to do? Why repeat the word? Uh, But they did this. I mean, Mueller did the same thing. People forget this, that Mueller uh, used false statements referrals from both the SISI, the Senate Intelligence Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee, Mm -hmm. used referrals to advance his own investigation. Just as one example, and this is one that people often forget, there was a guy named Sam Patton, and he was sort of the mirror image of Paul Manafort. He was um, con- he had a partnership with Konstantin Kalimnik that was independent of Paul Manafort's partnership with Konstantin Kalimnik. Konstantin Kalimnik, of course, uh, the government is pretty explicit, is a Russian spy. Mm-hmm. So these two men had ties to this Russian spy, um, Sam Patton actually worked on Cambridge Analytica with Konstantin Kalimnik. And um, Sam Patton, to the Senate Intelligence Committee in early 2018, lied about being a straw donor for uh, inauguration tickets for one of the Ukrainians that he had been working with. Okay. So in other words, uh, he told this, he told Sissy, you know, um, no, no, I didn't buy these tickets for this uh, Russian-backed Ukrainian oligarch. Uh, they referred that as a false statement to Mueller in early 2018. And then the FBI shows up to um, Patton's house and Patton tries to delete some evidence. And by the, then in May of 2018, Mueller starts talking to Patton. And by that point, they have not only that false statement laid out, but also a FARA uh, a, a violation, meaning he should have registered his ties to Kalimnik and the, the efforts he was making in the U.S. with Kalimnik and did not. And so they flipped him. And this was all, I think Kalimnik knew this and probably some other people knew this in real time, but it wasn't public until August when he pled guilty. But basically, Mueller got 
um, May to August, so three months of cooperation from Patton to understand how Konstantin Kalimnik worked while he was still working on, hopefully, and this failed, but uh, getting Paul Manafort to flip. So it was really valuable information about how the Russians and Ukrainians were interfering in U.S. efforts and how Konstantin Kalimnik worked. He actually, Sam Patton provided some of the most important testimony about this famous August 2, 2016 meeting between Manafort and Kalimnik, because Kalimnik went, went to Patton afterward and said, oh, yeah, I, now I know how Trump is going to win the election. You know, that's, that's your second witness wow. against that meeting. Um, and, and again, you would, Mueller would never have gotten that had Sissy not quietly referred Patton for a false statement investigation. And, and the um, prosecution of Stone, and remember, I explained earlier that the actual prosecution that everyone watched was just a step in a larger prosecution into whether he was conspiring with Russia. You know, they, they were like, we're going to focus on WikiLeaks mm -hmm. because that's what's public. And meanwhile, we're going to investigate a larger, much more sensitive investigation into Roger Stone's direct ties to the Russians. And they, so they used uh, Stone's hipsy testimony much in the way that they might use, say, Ali Alexander's testimony to the January 6th committee. They used his testimony as a tool in the larger prosecution of Stone. I suspect that they are doing the same thing with the referrals, the um, contempt referrals of people like Bannon and... Um, Mark Meadows? What about Mark Meadows? Well, yeah, uh, Mark Meadows is a special case. Okay. Uh, Navarro is the one I was thinking oh, gotcha. about my brain for, right. for a second. But, um, but, 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 you know, everyone's complaining that DOJ is not acting on these contempt referrals quickly enough. And, and one thing that I keep repeating and people keep ignoring is that uh, the Bannon case was assigned to Carl Nichols, who is um, not just a Trump appointee, but he's a Clarence Thomas Oy. clerk. Um, <laughs> okay. And he's roiling up the DOJ investigation in another way, which is neither here nor there. But um, And he, in one of the early hearings in the Bannon case, said, you only take criminal contempt against somebody if you've, if you've given up hope of them cooperating. This is not about coercing their cooperation, which is what civil contempt is for. This is about punishing somebody for not cooperating. And... Once you assume that, and one should assume that Navarro would be handed to the same judge, that Meadows would be handed to the same judge, then the advantages of prosecuting somebody go down mm -hmm. if you think that they would be more useful as, as cooperators. And oh, by the way, that a prosecutor I told you about who had been prosecuting Baked Alaska, yeah, um, who now, who's the one who sent the subpoena to Peter Navarro, Every case that she was involved with in the January 6th investigation involves somebody who flipped. Ooh. And in one case, people that they're trying to flip a second level. So uh, she seems to have a particular focus, a particular skill set on getting cooperating witnesses. She's the one who subpoenaed Peter Navarro. And, and you have to ask yourself, I mean, with Meadows, again, he's a separate case because he's got a whole lot of criminal liability that... Um, Navarro may not have. Right. Um, but with, with all of these people, would you rather flip them or would you rather them serve a month in jail? Right. No, we want to flip them. That makes more sense. So we get useful information out of them and a month isn't going to do anything. Right. So that's what I think is going on. And I think that 
DOJ is using these criminal referrals as a way to say, okay, you're covering up something. Let's go investigate what you're covering up. And then once we've shown that you, um, I mean, uh, okay, now that you asked about Meadows, let me go to Meadows. Okay. Meadows, um, there's that report recently that um, he is known to have burned documents in his White House fireplace. Right. Meadows replaced his phone. He was doing a lot of White House business on his on his personal phone and on his personal email account. He did not at first send those documents to the archives to be archived. Uh, after such time as he had to have known there was a grand jury investigation, he replaced his phone, thereby destroying evidence that would have been covered by the Presidential Records Act. Mm -hmm. So even ignoring everything else Mark Meadows did, uh, he starts off with a whole bunch of evidence that he obstructed this investigation, criminally obstructed this investigation. So that's that's the baseline for Meadows. And my suspicion is that at the very least, he'll be charged with obstruction and, and they'll try and flip him that way. But then add, add to that, um, because all of these investigations are ultimately going to A or multiple interlocking conspiracy cases, um, go to that, that Mark Meadows was involved in setting up Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger in Atlanta. Okay. Mark Meadows wow. was involved in setting up the fake elector scheme involving seven swing states. Ooh. Mark Meadows mm. was involved in um, getting and working with members of Congress who um, kind of cheered the uh, insurrection as it happened. Mark Meadows was involved in some communications with people who were part of the insurrection. And so Mark Meadows, A, clearly is on the hook for obstructing this investigation, but B, is a clear player in a conspiracy and whatever you want to charge, whether it's obstruction or whether it's sedition or what have you, Mark Meadows is significantly exposed in such an investigation. And that's why DOJ is taking their time wow. is to put together a charge like that such that you might be able to flip Meadows. He also has a, a problem with voter fraud in North Carolina, he and his right. wife. So there's, right. Right. it sounds like there's a whole stack of potential charges against Mark Meadows and maybe. Right, right. Oh. Whereas with, particularly with Navarro, I've always said from the start that um, it's not clear to me that Navarro broke the law. Navarro, on paper at least, claims that he only wanted Congress to make objections. Uh, I think Navarro may be insulated from the direct ties to the insurrectionists that both Roger Stone and Rudy Giuliani and probably my, uh, probably, um, Mike Flynn and, you know, probably Steve Bannon, they all likely have ties to people who were orchestrating the insurrection. Navarro probably doesn't. Right. So Navarro's not tied to the attack on the Capitol directly. He's tied to the efforts to stall the congressional vote. Navarro um, at least claims he didn't want the violence. So he's not got as much legal exposure as stone right and, with and, january 6th and, but but he went on uh msnbc and basically admitted to his role here here's a clip that's going around we had uh over 100 congressmen and senators on capitol Hill ready to implement the sweep we were going to challenge the the results of the election in the six battleground states do you realize you are describing a coup no why risk <laughs> 
a legal battle or going to jail to refuse to discuss them with the committee under oath. The president has invoked executive privilege. It's not my privilege to waive. Do you no, understand no, no, no. that you've already Stop waved it by discussing it? They want under That's oath. And number two, finally, Peter, finally, Peter, no, no, no. are you prepared to risk indictment for defying the subpoena? Uh, I'll stand tall on this. Uh, so he he went on TV. Basically, I, it sounded like to me he's bragging about his role in in the coup attempt. Isn't yeah, that except that except that he's always talking about Congress uh-huh. and well, getting Congress to challenge the vote certifications from each state was a key part of the conspiracy. We'll call it conspiracy mm-hmm. um, to the extent that he is only talking about con- congressional challenges. Um, that's not a crime. Having Congress challenge the vote is not a crime. It's a crime to force Peter. It's a crime to try and coerce Mike Pence to to commit a crime, which is where John Eastman, I think, has significantly more criminal exposure. It's a crime to sick a mob out to assassinate Mm -hmm. Mike Pence, which is where Trump and um, maybe Stone, maybe Giuliani have significantly more exposure. What Navarro claims to have done and I haven't seen the paperwork, is far more modest and not clearly illegal. Gotcha. Uh, and, and so even in that clip with Melber, right, he's describing that Trump invoked executive privilege. Well, he didn't. I mean, this is what we know from the Bannon case is mm-hmm. um, Trump's lawyer basically waved a hand and said executive privilege without doing the things you need to do to waive executive privilege without uh, actually working with, the, with uh, Congress themselves. I assume the record is the same with Navarro, and I assume DOJ knows that, having you know spent six months looking through the record on Bannon. And I assume one thing they're going to get from the subpoena if Navarro complies is a pattern by which uh, Trump is claiming executive privilege without actually invoking it as a way to try and obstruct these investigations. And I think that that's leverage to get Navarro to start talking. Oh. So um, mm-hmm. my guess is, you know, they're going to take a unique approach to all of these people. With Bannon, they charged him. With Navarro, who was a close presidential associate. And so the right. executive privilege claims are slightly different. Um, uh, maybe they'll try and flip him because I don't think he's as legally exposed as Meadows, certainly, and Bannon probably. Um, and then with Meadows, you work on that charge. You work on significant legal charges such that he's going to want to start talking. Right. Wow. So, Marcy Wheeler, chances are we're not going to talk before the hearings, before the televised hearings next week. I'm hoping we can talk afterwards and and sort of do a, a wrap up of what happened. But what do you expect the outcome to be? What how, what do you expect us to be thinking when the, the hearings are over and we're done? Look, it's you and I and we're going to be really impressed. Right. <laughs> right. Especially you, who's who hasn't been leaving, living and breathing this January 6th stuff for right. a year and a half. Exactly. Um and I think people who haven't been living and breathing the January 6th stuff for a year and a half will be impressed. I think that Fox News will be covering Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, uh, Margaret Sullivan, the Washington Post columnist, did a piece saying this is not going to work the way it did in Watergate because there's not there's not unified media. Right. I mean, Fox is not going to cover like yesterday after the after the Sussman verdict. Um, before it, 
Fox was basically saying, well, gosh, if Sussman is acquitted, that's sort of a black eye for Durham. After Sussman was acquitted, they were like, they had the headlines on Fox were ridiculous, Nicole. They were like, um, the person accused of lying to the FBI will find, learned his fate. They didn't say Durham <laughs> had an embarrassing failure. They didn't say he was acquitted. They didn't wow. tell you the results of the trial because they are shielding their viewers from that actual news. And so you should expect similar backflips about what actually happened when the January 6th committee starts presenting their evidence. You're going to find similar kinds of things we saw in both impeachment trials um, with with the right wing all speaking from the same talking points. Yep. Um, so I don't expect that to be much different. I'm sorry. I expect it to be slightly more effective. Um, it'll be effective because Liz Cheney will be involved. And frankly, because Liz Cheney is a more effective bureaucrat and a more fearless bureaucrat than most of the Democrats. True. I mean, I agree. Yep. Doesn't need it. Doesn't need the evil ways of her father and hopefully put them to good use. Um, And we should expect, you know, people in the middle to be impressed, but we should not expect this to be Watergate. And I'm sorry to say that we're just not that country anymore. Just not that country anymore. Sad, but true. Marcy Wheeler, again, find her at emptywheel.net and read her daily. (laughs) You can thank me later. All right. I'm Nicole Sandler. I always enjoy filling in for Brad when I can. He and Desi will be back after a little break. And I'll see you another time. Come on over and visit me at nicolesandler.com. That's where my show is based. And do check it out. As always, thank you for listening. And as Brad always says, good luck, world. Boy, do we need it.